All right, hey, good morning, Calvary Church. It all started with a garden. And there are gardens throughout the story of God. The key moments in the story of God all seem to have a garden in them. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Calvary where Jesus was crucified, and the Garden Tomb where he came back to life in power. And then the Garden City that he is preparing for us in the future. Gardens, maybe sort of unknowingly or unrealizing how important gardens are in the story of God because the story of God is the story of life and gardens are teeming with life. Life abundant, life broken, and then life abundant again. Now this Sunday, as we'll talk about a garden, but this Sunday is Palm Sunday and so as we talk about all of the things that we will discuss today, we're kind of we're looking into some of the expectations and hopes that we have, the deepest longings that we have because of what was broken. And we see how somewhat how the people of Israel on Palm Sunday were longing for something too small. And how God was saying, I have something so much more for you. Because everything that was broken in the Garden of Eden will be restored again. And God is doing that work in us now. And God is doing a great work for eternity in us as well. And so today in our garden, of, our garden we kind of joked with this. We call this, uh, this whole theme of Holy Week of garden to garden. It could have been like garden to garden to garden to garden to garden. But I don't know if that would have looked as good on like the flyer or whatever. But it is kind of this whole thing of garden to garden to garden. And so today the first of those gardens is the Garden of Eden. We're going to be looking at some br- pretty big chunks of scripture. And uh, so I encourage you to grab your Bible or grab a device And turn to Genesis 2. We'll be looking at Genesis 2 and 3 primarily today here as we look into the Garden of Eden. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation today. So we start at the beginning, right? And as we look at Genesis 2, I don't know if you maybe, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but that there are actually two creation accounts, two tellings of the creation account, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. You're probably most familiar with Genesis 1, and because that's just kind of what we think, you know, in, in, on the second day God did this, and it was good, you know, all that, and then the third day, and then in, in the, the whole thing as we go through. Now it does it again in chapter 2, and so as we look into this, you'll see how much even a garden is part of everything. Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden. All right, so creation, like the, essentially the creation story is like already taking place right there. I mean, the, the man, was, man was created on the sixth day of creation, plants much earlier. So when he says the Lord God planted a garden, he's not saying, and God, like, created plants here. What he's saying is, then God did something. After he'd done all the, all the whole creation, 
My assumption is then he rested, and then he planted a garden, all right? So God gets to work on this garden, and this is where people live at first. And so let me, let me find my place again. So verse 8, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, which means delight, in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. And it kind of goes on to talk about these four branches of this river, of the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Then verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So the man has a role, has work to do in this garden. He's to watch over it, to cultivate it. There's work, there's purpose happening here in this garden. Verse 16. But the Lord God warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Okay, so then, uh, then what you get is like the account of woman being created. And then actually you see in verse 25, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And so you've got this Garden of Eden, this beautiful place, this place where everything is right. And in this garden, it says there's many trees. There's all sorts of trees there, but there were two very special and important trees. The tree of life that was in the center of this garden, the tree of life where if you eat from this tree, you will continue to live forever as long as you eat from this tree. But then there was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree they were not supposed to eat from. It was like God has one thing, one rule. I got one thing I need you to do, all right? And that is this. Don't eat from this tree. Now, he says, if you do, you will die. So they're in this place. They're in this place that just seems like it's perfect, right? The Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was God's intent for humanity, the Garden of Eden is how God intended for everything to be, where you have God's presence, intimacy with God. We'll see a little later as it talks about the curse. It says God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We don't ever see a verse that says God was walking with Adam or something like that, even though it's like something people say, but there's no verse that says that. But it, we do see later just God, we see God walking in the garden. So we know God's around. God's presence is there with them. And so there's this sense of everything is right. God's presence is there. There's this intimacy. There's this whole thing called shalom, right? This, this word for peace that means so much more than just peace, right? It's this sense of wholeness, this sense of contentment, fullness, intimacy with God, that there's work and fruitfulness. And so that shalom is part of all of that, this peace and fruitfulness, contentment that they had in the garden. And all of that was there for Adam and Eve forever. They could eat from this tree of life and live forever in it. That was God's good and perfect will for them. I wonder if you even, like, do you ever go into a garden and just get like a little sense of peace. Like if you go to some awesome garden like Huntington Library and Gardens or some big, you know, huge, like beautiful cultivated garden somewhere. Or even in walking through an orchard or some sort of 
crop field or even just kind of, I've got a couple little raised beds in my backyard with some vegetables in it, right? And like, I don't know, I don't know about you, and I don't know if it's just me thing, but like, I don't, I, I have like just a sense of like, ah, oh, right, this is, this is nice. And part of me wonders if it's like a 0.000001% glimpse into the Garden of Eden, right? This is like how it's supposed to be. This is God's intent, that we would have this sense of, of like wonder and peace in this garden. And remembering here in this garden in, in Genesis 2.25 that they were naked and felt no shame. That there wasn't shame, there wasn't guilt, everything was right in the world. As this man and woman were fully vulnerable, fully themselves with one another, and that was perfect. That was as it should be. That's God's intent for humanity. But you see, there is a liar with a great lie. This liar with a great lie came into the garden and took everything that was right and twisted it. And I'm about to read to you this, the story of this lie, even in Genesis 3. And even this morning, as I was reading the part that was, I, was, I always go through this, the sermon in the morning beforehand, and as I was reading that part, this verse that's the actual lie itself, I kind of felt almost like, I felt attacked. I felt like a staggered almost, like a physical sense of being, like of staggering as I read that lie. Because the enemy continues to lie. And the enemy is on the attack against you. It's an attack for your very soul. And it's an attack for you to believe the lies that he still has for you. And so I want you as we go through this to hear this and to hear God's truth for you and God's hope for you. Because the enemy comes in with a lie. And let's, we need to look into that lie and to face it in its fullest. Uh, the serpent that we will read of was there in the garden. And this serpent that is spoken of, it says that, that God made the serpent, it says here. It says that the serpent was crafty. And we think of this serpent as the devil, the great adversary, the great Satan, deceiver who is opposed to God. And we know he is the enemy. And we know he is the father of lies he is spoken of as. We also know he's an angel of light, part of this divine council of heaven. That's kind of a mysterious thing that we don't totally understand, but that, that we see him kind of around at certain parts in the story and Job and other things where he's kind of like around and trying to battle against us, even in this like divine council of heaven. And he brings this lie and Adam and Eve believe this lie because it was a cunning deception filled with truth. The best lies are filled with truth, and this one very much is so. So turn again, just turn to Genesis 3, just uh, right over there. And we're going to read a pretty relatively big chunk here, Genesis 3, 1 through 24. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Here it comes. Here's the lie. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious 
And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, by the way. Just a little, like, I feel like I always got to do this aside for the ladies in the room. You know, like, who was with her, it says, that, that Adam was there the whole time. While the lie's going on, Adam, Adam is there watching the serpent lie to, to Eve and he doesn't stop it. He doesn't do anything about it. He just sits there, watches her take the fruit and eat it. And then when she hands it to him, he eats it too, it says. Verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened. That was what the, the enemy, the liar, said would happen. It's true, right? Their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Um, a great friend and mentor of mine named Rob Lone always says about this line, where are you? He says, this was not so much a question of location, it's a question of the heart. God knows where they are, where they're standing, even though they're hiding behind a tree. It's like, good job trying to hide from me. I'm God. I'm asking, where are you in your heart? So as we go through this, consider that question for yourself. God says, where are you? He's asking, where is your heart right now in relation to him? He replied, the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. So not only is he blaming the woman, he's blaming God for giving the woman. So it's just like deflection and blame and all of that is being put over there on God and onto the woman. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. Blame, deflection, take it off of herself, right? Right away, right there, for her as well. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed. More than all animals, domestic and wild, you'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you'll strike his heel. These are allusions to Jesus. We can't quite get there today right now. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. This is part of the curse. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. When I was a kid, I hated onions. I hated raw onions. And so I'd always say that onions were part of the thorns and thistles of the field. Therefore, God did not want me to eat them. Uh, maybe a Bible nerd at my core. But, like, um, for, <laughs> but part of the curse. So verse 19. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. 
and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins. That's interesting, right? Just kind of a crazy little side. So God makes them clothing from animal skins uh, for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. So this is maybe like to that divine council of heaven or the angels or a Trinitarian kind of a thing happening here. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, angels, to the east of the garden of Eden and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the story of the curse. That's the story of the lie and the effects of the lie being believed. Because there was a liar with a great lie and that came into the world and everything was broken. So what are these lies, just quickly again? First of all, this first lie was, you surely will not die. Now, again, remembering, these lies, the best lies, have tons of truth in them. Because they didn't die. They didn't take the fruit, eat it, and then it was like as if it was like poisoned, and then they just instantly fall dead, right? No, but they ate it, and they were, they, they did, all right, we're not dead yet, right? But that is when death entered the scene, and they were cast away from the tree of life, and eventually, yes, they do die. The other lie, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All true, yet part of this great lie and deception against them. Because afterwards, what's going on is, like immediately afterwards, all of a sudden it shows them their nakedness and the shame that was in that from the beginning and as filled the sexual relationship with shame even to today. We see all of that, the way everything was twisted and tainted of what God had to be beautiful and vulnerable and wonderful is now twisted and nakedness equals shame. And part of like why I think even sexual sin is just like so insidious and so it fills our whole world with shame as the enemy has twisted God's intent for that, for man and woman to be naked and unashamed in that way before him. But it opened them up to their shame, their guilt in everything. And Eden, again, means delight, right? And the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it says, was, was beautiful. It was delicious looking. It was, it was a delight to the eyes, the book of James, even as it talks about sin, says that you'll be, be careful that you're not lured away and enticed using fishing language, like a, a lure or bait that's being dangled before a fish, and that we are, we are like that. We see it, and we see it. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. It looks wonderful. I, I want that so badly because it looks so good at first, and that same thing's happening here with them where it looks beautiful. What's wrong with that? The things that he's saying about that seem right. That seems to make sense to me. I don't care what God says. That makes sense to me. I'm going to do it. That's everything how sin pervades our world today. That the, our culture, society, whoever is saying, no, 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 this makes sense. Don't you see how this makes sense? It doesn't matter what God says about it. It's what you think and what you want that matters. Do whatever you want. It's the same lie and it's getting twisted for us even now. And we're suckers for it every time. But so don't fall to the lies 
Because we've received what the serpent promised. Our eyes were opened. And we could never unsee it that that shame and that guilt is with us. I believe lies. I've believed lies in my time. So often, I remember kind of an early on issue for me was just wanting people to like me, wanting to be cool, wanting to be popular and all of that. And then it's like that people pleasing sort of sticks with you where you think like you have to do everything to make people like you or to be, to be accepted and all of that. And then early on, it was like just to do whatever. It didn't matter if it was sin or whatever, to do whatever it took to be accepted. And like, I think now then that can cre- creep in with thinking like, oh, you find your identity or who you are. Or you find your purpose and fulfillment in that acceptance or in pleasing people instead of just pleasing God alone. That can be a thing that creeps in for me. And so what lies have you believed? What lies are you believing that the enemy brings to draw you away from God? Because Adam and Eve and then all humanity with them left the garden that day. And the rest of the story, the rest of this whole story is people trying to get back into the garden. Right? Even though there's a giant angel waving a flaming sword to keep us from the garden. We're trying to get back into the garden ourselves. We've even tried to maybe create our own gardens with our great skills. We think like we can build a tower to heaven. It happens right just after this in the story in Genesis 11. The people try to build a tower to heaven that we could go and be like God. We, we can be as great as him with our great skill. We can get back to God. We think about how we try to do that with our wealth, that we can make an idyllic world where we feel no pain. With our great knowledge and technology, we can reverse aging in this world. It's even like a current science now of anti-aging science. I just listened to this podcast of this guy, Dr. David Sinclair, who has reversed the aging of an eye in a mouse, okay, where it went from blind from aging to be able to see again. And it's like this whole movement of uh, anti-aging, which can have some really great and beneficial things for us. But it's like, as a society, are we thinking we can just live forever? I mean, even the whole cryogenics thing that we used to see where, you know, you chop your head off and stick it on ice and hope for the best in the future. And so, like, that kind of a thing where we think, okay, I'm going to live forever. And we think from our wealth, our knowledge, our skills, our technology, that we'll be able to do that and that we can reverse the curse on the ground ourselves to be able to cultivate crops on the moon or on Mars or wherever. And so we're constantly trying to get back to the garden ourselves. But then when it comes to spiritually, you think where we are trying to create our own peace, our own fulfillment, our own shalom, our own sense of eternity, trying to be perfect and good and holy in and of ourselves or creating an image of God that accepts anything I do and approves of anything I do, so therefore I don't need forgiveness. Because God doesn't, there's no, I haven't done any sin. God approves of everything I do. What's, why should I look at the, the commands of God in the Bible? I am good. And God says there is so much more broken in the garden than you realized. So much more is broken. 
So much more is broken of our intimacy with God and the great longing of our human heart to be close to God, to be that, that sense of, of fulfillment, that sense of being close to him, that intimacy with him. What is broken for you when it comes to that? What is broken for you when you think about feeling close to God or far from God? Do you ever like, how do you feel when you think about that? Do I feel close to God or far from God? I think part of the curse is that sense of us always feeling far from God. There's that sense of even, even now, even though we have, even if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. We're not fully all the way there yet, right, to our future glory. And so we have this longing and this sense of something's missing where we can feel far from God even now. I think that's part of the curse because at that point of the curse, our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with self was broken. Our relationship with others was broken. And even our relationship to our creation was, to the creation was broken. And God sees all of that brokenness and we feel that brokenness and God wants to come in and restore what was broken. I struggle with earning God's favor, right? I don't know if you struggle with that sense of, is God only pleased with me because of what I do for him? Or is God just pleased with me and love me just for me, right? I can struggle because of somehow in the way I'm wired. Like it's my, the stuff I do for God that he loves, not just me. And that's, that's a lie. That's part of what was broken. And so the opposite of a garden is a desert, right? You think about a desert, this dry and parched land with no source of life. And you think of the Israelites wandering in this desert. Wandering in this desert for decades, they were longing for the promised land, right? As they wander in the desert, they're longing for this promised land that's spoken of as a place that was flowing with milk and honey. It's just this symbol of God's provision. It actually, we think it actually means like date palms and goats, okay? Date honey and goat milk. So that's what they were wanting, right? This is land flowing with milk and honey, but that's God's provision for them. And so they're longing for that, that sustenance, that provision as they're in the desert. And so we could be like in this sense that, because that promised land is symbolic of what we are longing for in the, in the end of days, what we're longing for in the new heaven, new earth, this garden city that God is creating for us. We're longing for that. What are you longing for? So I ask you today, really consider this. What pain in your life needs healing? What emptiness in your heart needs filling? What thirst do you have that needs quenching? I think, what freedom do you need in the midst of your bondage? I was praying, I was over, sitting over here during the music, and I'm just praying and singing and then I feel like God just sometimes puts on my heart where I just I have to pray over our church and the people of our church and I was just speaking and praying freedom over you in whatever ways that means and looks like for you but just speaking God's freedom over you God wants you to have this freedom in him to be fully yourself this sense of naked and unashamed right before God that you can be fully who God has made you to be. He speaks freedom to you. What are you longing for? What do you need in that deepest sense of who you are? And I think back to that first Palm Sunday in light of all of this, right? 
And you've got Jesus coming on the scene. You've had the people of Israel that are they're, they're longing for a Messiah, for a Savior. But what they're longing for is this Messiah, this Savior to come in and to save them because they have been under Roman occupation. Before that, it was Greek occupation. Before that, it was, you know, Assyrian and Babylonian occupation. I mean, they've been occupied and they've been exiled and they've been defeated by all the great empires of history. And so you see them just, they've been beaten down, beaten down, and they're just, God, send us a Messiah to save us from these Romans that are occupying our land. And they're, they're wanting God to come in and save them from that. And so as Jesus is coming in and he's, Going down on the Mount of Olives on this donkey, right? He's coming in and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They want religious freedom and strength for their country. When God has said, I have come to redeem the sins of the world, and I've prepared a place for you that is a garden city, a new heaven, new earth, for you to spend eternity. I have brought a plan for you to be forgiven forever. And you want religious liberty and strength for your country? Like why? <laughs> how, have you, how have you longed for something too small? Are you longing for something too small now when Jesus has so much more for you? I think this is a pretty relatable longing that we have. We long for religious liberty and strength for our country. And Jesus says, I have something so much more for you. The great mission I have is liberty for all humanity, for all time, from the greatest lie and the curse and the bondage that you are under because of that curse of the greatest enemy that has come to defeat you and destroy you and make you spend an eternity in hell separated from God in weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you want that? No, I've got something so much more for you. But the people ended up being angry enough to kill him because he didn't bring them what they wanted. How have you looked for something to Small. Political victories, gotcha victories on social media, security and safety for your family, sex, money, power, these great idols of our time. Even do you want God to get the angel with the flaming sword to let you back into the Garden of Eden? I think God would even say, that is too small because even the garden itself will be renewed. I've got something even better for you waiting. God says, don't think too small. Look at what I'm doing. I'm preparing this place for you. And yeah, you won't, there's, you won't get in without permission. That permission is in Jesus Christ and what he did and what he will do in these upcoming gardens. But Romans 18.23, I want to read this passage real quick here first. Romans 18.23, uh, wait, no, 18.2.23. Romans 8.18.2.23, it says this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. You hear that? Back to the curse, back to Genesis 3. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, 
The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in uh, the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. So we have the Holy Spirit. That's just, it's just a taste, it's just a glimpse of the glory we will one day have. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And so this is just beautiful that we groan and long for what God will one day give us because we look at this Garden of Eden where everything was beautiful and it was as God's intended, but where everything was broken. And we look toward another garden and another tree this Friday. A garden where Jesus was crushed and a tree where Jesus was crucified where he broke that curse on that cursed tree. And everything changed in that moment. But then we even look toward another garden on Sunday where Jesus came out of that garden tomb in victory and just utterly defeated sin, utterly defeated death as he came alive again. And that's what we'll celebrate next Sunday. And we look toward another garden at the end of days where the tree of life stands tall again and God is with his people making all things new. Get ready. Get ready. Get your heart ready. Where are you? Where are you, friends? Where is your heart in relationship to that, to this message that God has for you? So here's what I ask you to do. Get ready. Prepare your own heart. Prepare your own heart this week for Good Friday and Easter. Where are you? Answer that question of where are you in relation to God? You could be listening to this as a lifelong believer. You could be listening to this as a seeker. You could be listening to this as someone that is, is just opposed to God entirely. You could be listening to this as a tired Christian who has been weighed down by this year. And I say, where are you? Prepare your heart for Good Friday and Easter. And then I'd ask you to think about who can I invite to join me on Easter Sunday to hear this message. The hope that is in this, the hope that comes from the garden tomb that leads to the garden city where we will all spend that eternity with Christ and a life of shalom again in fulfillment and purpose and work and intimacy with God. That is what we hope for and long for. And I hope and long that everyone can join us there. So who can you invite into that? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would be vulnerable, naked before you and open and honest about where we are. Open and honest about the longings that we have, the, the ways that we've tried to create our own garden, the ways that we've tried to heal ourselves of what was broken. God, I pray that you would draw us to you, Lord, to your work upon the cross and your work as you arose from that garden tomb, Lord. May our trust be fully in you and in that alone. And so, Lord God, I pray that today each one here would be able to answer you in your question of where are you.
I pray that each one would speak to you today, God, saying, this is where I am, Lord, and this is what I need. I need you, Jesus. May we lay ourselves bare before you, God. And may we be unashamed because of the work that you have done and the love that you have given us, your beautiful grace. So we worship you now. You are worthy because of who you are and what you've done. We worship you in this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.